0: Hi, this is Rabbi Shays Taub from SoulWords. Before we listen to this brand new class that we've just uploaded, a class that was recorded live last night in front of an audience in the five towns, and it was simulcast live on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash soulwords, a class entitled Unpacking Your Spiritual Toolkit. I would like to have one minute to address you, the podcast listener. If you're listening to us, which you are, on podcast platforms, I wanted to tell you the following. You may not know everything that we're doing at SoulWords. So, first of all, I wanted to encourage you to check out SoulWords.org. SoulWords.org is our website. It's our virtual home. It's where you will find literally thousands of hours of classes, workshops, lectures on all types of Jewish spiritual topics. So, please check that out. Now, here's the message that is really uh, timely. This coming Matsishaba Shabbos, Saturday night, November 13th, as well as Sunday night, November 14th. We are doing two evenings of live streaming of our Learnathon where we live stream and we entertain you and we teach you a little something, but the real purpose of it, let's be blunt, is it is our yearly fundraiser. So if you're enjoying our content, you like what we do, Please go to charity.com, that's charity with a D, C-H-A-R-I-D-Y.com forward slash R-S-T, R-S-T like Rabbi chase top, charity.com forward slash R-S-T, and go and donate. It's a matching campaign, your funds will be doubled, and uh, the campaign is in, in countdown mode now, but the pre-donate button is live, so you can donate right now, if you're hearing this now, go there and, and vote early, vote often, you can donate now, you can vote, donate later, you can donate both times. Um, share the link charity.com slash RST with all your friends with everybody you think who might enjoy this content and we thank you for your support we thank you for being part of this virtual community and we uh, thank you for the privilege of being part of your spiritual journey okay and now I'm going to turn it over to me (laughs) a recording of me I'm giving a class last night okay fine here's the class that you wanted to hear thanks for listening So this month is the month of Kislev. And the month of Kislev is significant in that um, it is the month of the revelation of the inner dimension of Torah, the month of the revelation of the inner dimension of Torah what do i mean by the inner dimension you know the, the the zohar says that there is a body and the soul of torah there's the the body is the hal- the, halacha, the 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 legalistic discussions the practical the technical and then the soul is the the spiritual concepts the the mystical ideas of souls and 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 worlds and all these abstract concepts um, and the, both dimensions, the inner and the, the external, are, are both essential, just like a person needs a body and a soul. Um, but they, uh, well, let, 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 let me put it like this. To sell somebody on the necessity of the body of the Torah, on the technical, the legalistic um, it, it's, it's much easier to talk about it because it's practical, it's, it's concrete. So you talk about you know behaviors like lighting Shabbos candles, putting on tefillin, giving tzedakah, those things are easier to talk about. When it comes to the inner dimension of the Torah, the spiritual dimension, it, it's obviously more difficult to explain. You're talking about abstractions, you're talking about ideas, you're talking about things, not only that can't be seen, but sometimes things that can't even be imagined. Um, and, and, and yet, we know that you, you need to have both. You have to have the body and the soul. You have to have the the, the practical along with the, the uh, inspirational. So the giving of the Torah, historically speaking, was in the month of Sivan. But in the Torah, it doesn't call it Sivan, because in the Torah, it doesn't give names to months. It gives them numbers, and it refers to months by ordinal numbers from having left Egypt. The first month is the, the month of the exodus. In fact, the first mitzvah prior to the exodus was the lunar calendar. So the first month is the month of leaving, uh, leaving Egypt, which, which we call Nisan. And the second month was the month of Iyar. And the third month we call Sivan. But in the Torah, it calls it the third month. And it says the Torah was given in the third month. Okay, and why was the Torah given in the third month? Because basically, Torah is the idea of three. And the Talmud talks about this at length that Moses, who was the one who received the Torah for the Jewish people, he was a third-born child, and, and the Jewish people separated to prepare for the giving of the Torah for three days, and um, that it was in the third month, as we mentioned, in the threefold nation of Kohain, Levi, Yisrael, and it was a, a three-part Torah, the, the, the Tanakh, Torah, Novim, and and and, and many other threes that are connected with the Torah, and the idea of, of three is that, you know, to put it in philosophical terms, you have thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. So you have an idea, you have the opposite, the contradiction, and then Torah is the big picture that has room for the contradiction. Um, hence, you know, the the joke that the rabbis can never agree, right, that the, for everything, there's another opinion, or you know, they, they, they tell the story about a a receptionist at a shul answers the phone. There's a guy on the other end and says, I'm looking for a one-armed rabbi. And the receptionist says, you're looking for a what? He says, a one-armed rabbi. You heard me. She says, what's a one-armed rabbi? He says, well, I'll tell you what I want a one-armed rabbi for. The one that I have right now, the rabbi I have, I ask him a question. He gives me an answer. But then a second later, he says, but on the other hand. So I'm <laughs> looking for a, a one-armed rabbi. All right. But, but the, it, it's a joke, but every joke has a little truth. Okay, they say every truth has a little joke, but uh, every truth, every joke has a little truth. Truth has a little joke. What's the truth here? Is the idea that Torah is truth, and truth is bigger than one perspective. It cannot be limited to one perspective. If it were limited to one perspective, it wouldn't be the truth. Okay, and that's what we say: Elu veElu, Diver kim These and these are the words of the Living God. Not only that, both perspectives are legitimate, but. More than that, in order to have a true perspective, you need both perspectives, because Torah is is infinity, it's infinite. So two finite perspectives, each one alone cannot convey the truth, but then when you have a, a, a diversity of finite perspectives and you put them together, ah, now you have the truth. So that's why machloikis, the idea of a diversity of opinions, it's not a bug in Torah, it's a feature. And that's why Torah is connected with the idea of three. Because if it's not a paradox, it's not Jewish. Okay? If it's not a paradox, it's not Jewish. And that's why for everything we have, okay, there's another answer, there's another opinion. But that's all part of the idea that Torah is infinite truth, and that's why it, it combines within it a diversity of finite perspectives until you have the entire truth. So Torah is three. Torah is three. And that's why when the Torah was given, it was given in month number three. This is something that I could elaborate upon at length, but for the purposes of this lecture, suffice, you know, the, the two-minute uh, summary should suffice. Okay, so Torah is three. Now, here's the thing. When is the third month? And if you heard anything that I was saying, you would know Stephen is correct, but on the other hand... <laughs> Kislev, very good, because I told you, if anything Jewish, it has to be, but on the other hand, so Sivan is the third month, it's not that it's not the third month, but also, you know what also is the third month? See, it depends how you count months. One way of counting is, we count from the month of the Exodus, so we have Nisan, Eir, Sivan, fine, but there's another way of counting. In fact, it's in some ways more of an intuitive way of counting months, which is you count from the new calendar year. So when does the new calendar, in what month does the new Jewish calendar year begin? When is Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year? is Tishrei. So if Tishrei is one, then Cheshvan is two, and then Kislev is three. So Kislev is also the third month. So Kislev is also the month of Torah. The difference is, Sivan is the third month of the summer. Kislev is the third month of the winter. What's summer and winter? Summer is when the sun is shining, when it's warm out. Winter, when it's cold. Winter, when the days are shorter. That's concealment. So there's revelation and there's concealment. There's the revealed Torah, what we call nigle de Torah, the revealed. And that's the stuff that's easy to understand. It's easy to relate to because it's concrete, because it's... It's, uh, I don't want to call it, God forbid, pedestrian because it's holy, but it relates to pedestrian things, like what happens if this person's ox gores this person's cow, and so on and so forth. Then, so that's the Torah of the summer. Then there's the Torah of the winter, the dark, hidden, concealed Torah, what we call nister, the concealed dimension of Torah. That's talking about spiritual ideas, like souls and angels and different worlds, different uh, systems of reality. And both of them are Torah, the physical and the spiritual, the the concrete and the abstract. The legalistic and the mystical. They're both Torah. Happens to be Kislev is the month third month of the winter, so this is the month of the giving of, or the revelation of, the inner dimension, or the concealed dimension of Torah, which is also why Yud Tes Kislev, the 19th day of the month of Kislev, is Rosh Hashanah Lechzidis. It's By the way, it's not, don't, don't reverse the cause and effect. It's not that Kislev is the month of the revolution, uh, revelation of Pneumia Satoida, because Yud Tes Kislev, because the 19th day of it's the opposite. It's not... Is Pesach the holiday of freedom because the Jews went out of Egypt? Or did the Jews go out of Egypt then because Pesach is the holiday of freedom? And all you have to do is know that Abraham was making matzahs centuries before the Exodus, and you can answer that question. There are certain times that have certain energies which are conducive to certain things, and then later on at certain points, historical events ensue, which are in keeping with the spiritual energy of that time. So Yud test Kislev, which I mentioned a few times, I didn't say what it was, other than the fact that it's the new year of Kislev. That was the day when the Balatanya, the first Chabad Rebbe, was freed from prison. And when he was freed from prison, he was able to disseminate the teachings of Hasidism in a whole new way. So it is celebrated, not just in Chabad, but way beyond Chabad, as the Rosh Hashanah L'Chassidus. But what I'm telling you is, the Rosh Hashanah L'Chassidus is in the month of Kislev, not because of something that happened 200 years ago. Rather, something happened 200 years ago because that is the essence of Kislev. Kislev is the third month of the winter months, which means the giving of the Torah in its concealed inner mystical form. So far, so good? Everyone following this? Okay, fine. So I wanted to give a talk about the inner dimension of the Torah, because it's Kislev. And I started thinking, well, what do I really want to, what point do I really want to get across? What do I want people to come away with? So I'll tell you like this. Somebody once um, asked me, uh, this guy wanted to learn Kabbalah, like he, he never had learned Kabbalah, but he heard about Kabbalah, he really wanted to learn Kabbalah, so he said Let, let's learn Kabbalah so I told him, you know, if you want to learn Kabbalah you know, Zaya or whatever, Yitzchayim what, you want to learn Kabbalah, we can learn Kabbalah, but I would recommend Chassidus, I think you'll enjoy it more, I think it'll uh, be more relevant to you uh, so he says, well just tell me, what's the difference between Kabbalah and Chassidus so I came up with this on the spot. But since then, I've been saying it a lot because I like it. It made sense to me at the moment. The guy happened to be uh, an engineer. He was an engineer. So, uh, in fact, a mechanical engineer, which, you know, it's like an engineer's engineer. And I, uh, so I said to him, I said, do, do you know calculus? He said, sure, you had to learn calculus to be an engineer. I said, so Kabbalah and Hasidus is like calculus and engineering. There are mathematicians who know calculus a lot better than the engineers, but they can't build a bridge. The engineer may not know math as well as a mathematician, but he knows enough of it to build the bridge. this is the practical application of spiritual principles. And that's why I wanted to call this talk Unpacking Your Spiritual Toolkit. Because what I wanted to try to do, this is the challenge I set for myself tonight, is to convey to you some deep, mystical, spiritual ideas <clears throat> that come from Kabbalah and from Chassidus and then show you their practical implementation as tools. So it's spiritual, but it's tools. It's not spiritual like just to be inspired or just to, you know. Sometimes people like to learn because it's like, you know that, like, uh, it's almost like a high, you have like an out of body experience, and you know, it's it's like otherworldly, and and <sighs> yeah, but the real purpose for which the uh, the inner dimensions of the Torah revealed in our generation in unprecedented ways, the real purpose why that's happened is, is not for inspiration, it's not to get a spiritual high, it's because these are practical tools that we need for living. Okay, so anyways, that's the premise. You get the premise, more or less? Okay, fine. All right, so, um, yeah. Let's, let's go through some, uh, some examples here. By the way, before I tell you an example, I'll tell you a story. It's not a well-known story. I don't think it's written anywhere. I heard this story from Joseph Telushkin, who heard it from Herbert Wiener, who was a... I don't know if you know who he was. He wrote Nine and a Half Mystics, and it has a beautiful chapter there about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he, he was a Reform rabbi, and then he secretly became Orthodox. And then he, like, at his retirement party, he outed himself, and this whole congregation said, we knew, Rabbi, we knew. So anyways... Um, when he was in college, he went to Hebrew University. So Her- Herbert Wiener went to Hebrew University. When he was in Hebrew University, he took the Kabbalistic Studies class <clears throat> of Gershon Shalom. Now, anyone who ever studied Kabbalah, especially uh, the academic study of Kabbalah, you've heard of the name Gershon Shalom. So he was—he was not the most, let's say, he, was, he, he, he wasn't the most um, traditional. I'm saying it euphemistically. Okay, he studied Kabbalah. He studied Zaire as as an academic pursuit. Um, he was the world expert in it, but he did not believe in its sanctity. Okay, um, but he was the world's expert, no question. Okay, so Gershon Shalom is teaching Kabbalistic studies at Hebrew University. Herbert Wiener is one of the students there, and enrolls this. Uh, I I I I. Can't describe him any as anything better, more aptly than some Lubavitcher gadfly, who I, I mean, if anyone who knows Lubavitcher mishpachology, I could tell you who was the Redatz's son. Okay, there was a Redatz, was a chassid, a of He came to Eretz at the, the end of his life, he lived there, I think, for a few a few years. But he had a son named Avram Yehuda, Avram Yehuda Chayn. Redatz's name was Chayn. So, this Avram Yehuda Chain, don't worry about all these references. Just imagine you're in Hebrew University in Jerusalem in the, in the, in the, in the 50s. Gershon Shalom is teaching, and this guy, I do not know why Avram Yehuda Chain wandered into the class, but I don't know, he maybe was auditing, but he came into the class and he did, of course, what you would expect. I told you, is was some Lubavitcher gadfly. So, he started busting chops. So, he comes in and he says to Gershon Shalom, he says, Herr Professor, Pray tell, what is the difference between a Kabbalistic studies professor and a Chassid? Because gershon <laughs> Shalom was the Kabbalistic studies professor and Avram was Yehudah the, was the Chassid. He says, what's the difference between the Kabbalistic studies professor and the, and the uh, Chassid? So he says, I'll tell you the difference. I'll give you a marshal. I'll give you a, an allegory. He says, it's the same difference between an accountant and a business owner. Okay, what what does that mean? An accountant spends his whole day in numbers, and every number represents a dollar, even a penny, and he knows exactly how much of these numbers, dollars, cents, came into the company, how much went out. He knows exactly, and he knows every single day. At any moment, you're going to ask him, he knows to the penny. Okay, but at the end of the day, he closes his book, or his books, you know, and he goes home and he doesn't have access to, that, to any of that money. He knows exactly how much money is there, but it's not his money, so he, he can't spend it. Now, the business owner, he doesn't know exactly to the penny how much money came in today or went out today. He, maybe he doesn't even know every week, or you know, maybe he only knows every month, and it's not exactly to the penny or to the dollar. He knows generally if the business is doing well or not. But you know the difference? It's his money. It's his money. He can spend it. So... Avram Yehudah didn't finish and explain the, the analogy, but what, what, what was his point? He was saying Gersh Sholem knows every single word and every single letter in, in the Zohar. But he knows it academically. He's like the accountant who knows to the penny, but he can't spend the money. By choice, by his own choice, but he's a Jew. I mean, Torah is his... his Birthright, just as much as any Jew. If he wanted to lay claim to it, he could. But he didn't lay claim to it. He saw it as an academic study. Whereas the Chassid, what does the Chassid know? Maybe he knows Pasach <laughs> You know why every Chassid knows Pasach? Because it's in the Siddur, right? Out of Shabbos, very good. Maybe you know Kigavna. Kigavna is also, it's also Friday night in the Siddur. Maybe you know a couple lines here and there. That's it. I can't go any further. I don't know anymore. Okay. know, there's a few lines of... You know, a few, a few lines of Zohar, okay? But it's his money to spend, meaning he's made a choice to live according to these Kabbalistic principles. So maybe he can't quote you Zohar line by line, but he's living according to Zohar in his day-to-day life, okay? All right, so I want to talk about some deep concepts, Kabbalistic concepts, and then application, okay? So here's a concept. One concept is, I thought there's a pretty... Uh, basic Kabbalistic concept, um, that the nature of created existence is tentative. That God's existence is absolute, was, is, and will be, and that all creation is so conditional that it actually has to be regenerated every single second. So Hashem is recreating created reality at every moment, and if he would cease creating it, not only it would leave an empty space, there would be not even an empty space. In fact, not only would it cease to exist from now on, it would actually never have existed because it would lose everything, including its past. That's how conditional and tentative created existence is. It has no existence unto its own, even though it exists. Okay, I'm giving you the deep version first. So you, you like. Your eyes are like uh, glassing over, okay. But th- that's that's the kabbalistic concept. All right. I'll give you a practical application of this. So there was actually, this story is a story within a story. <laughs> the story took place. The story that the story is in took place in 770. 770 Eastern Parkway, where the the Lubavitcher was Fabreng. It was a Fabreng. It was a Shabbos Fabreng. It was Chof Shvat, uh, Tov Lamed. And there were... 1970. So there were a bunch of guests at the Shabbos Fabreng who were from Eretz and they had flights back that night. So The Fabrengen was sort of like continuing, and they were getting nervous, and they were looking at the clock like, "Eh, we got to get out of here, right? Okay, you know, those early winter Shabbosim, right? So they're looking at the clock, and and the Rebbe noticed they're looking at the clock, and in the middle of the Fabrengen, (laughs) the Rebbe addressed this issue. And, and told the following story. He says that it, was, it was back in the 1920s, and it was the height of communist oppression against organized Judaism. And he said, I was in Leningrad, and uh, I went into my father-in-law's apartment, the Rebbe's father-in-law, the previous Rebbe, the Rebbe Rayatz. So he said, my father-in-law had been taking yechidus all night. Yechidus are one-on-one visitors. So these are people who come in and they pour out their hearts and they, you know, it's heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff. So he'd been taking visitors for yechidus all night and it was, it was you know, the wee hours of, of, of the night and he was, in a half an hour, he had to get a morning train to Moscow. He had a fundraising meeting in Moscow with an industrialist, with some type of capitalist, some guy who had money. Um, and he was an international capitalist at that, not a Russian. So somebody who he was going to meet in Moscow. And um, so they were, they were spying on him all the time, the uh, Friede Rebbe. I mean, he was public enemy number one. Eventually, he, knew, he was arrested. He was arrested by them. So he knew he was always being watched. And you're talking about the stress of always being watched. The stress of he just was talking one-on-one all night to people who had been pouring out their hearts in the Yukidis meetings. The stress of you have a train to catch in a half an hour. I mean if I have a plane to catch that day, it could, you know, knock me out. He has a and, and look how close we are to JFK, right? <laughs> you can hear <laughs> I stopped, you know, I realized I became, you know, a real five towns local when I didn't hear the planes anymore. Um and, and he's meeting with a foreign capitalist, which that itself is, is a crime. People were shot for far less. So all of these, let's call it stressful things. And the Rebbe says, I walked into my father-in-law's room and he was sitting calmly at his desk arranging some papers like it was the middle of a regular work day. And he says, I was like taken aback by how like, you would, if you saw this person, you didn't know what he was going through in life in general and how he had just spent this evening and where he was going in a half an hour. You would think this is just a regular work day, a regular person. you know, the, the level of calm, the the level of just being settled. He wasn't acting like somebody who was in, a, in, a, in an intense situation. So the Rebbe said, I was so taken aback. I I asked him, ad de to this extent, you know, like, meaning, I know that we're supposed to control ourselves, we're supposed to have our our emotions under control, but to this extent, I mean, to act so calm and regular. So uh, he said, My father in law told me, he says, you know, there are exactly as many days and hours and minutes and seconds in a person's life as there are and you can't add any to that number. But what you can do is be completely present in each second. So the Rebbe told that story and the Rebbe said there are people right now (laughs) who are not 100% present with us right now at the gathering at the Febrengen. Understandably, they are thinking about how they have a plane to catch in an hour and a quarter. By the way, this is, I said 1970, so this is back when you could could catch a plane in an hour and a quarter, right? Nowadays with security and everything. Okay, but you you remember how it was in the good old days, right? Okay, fine, it was a little different. It was a lot different. But still, even in the the 70s, an hour and a quarter to get from Crown Heights, Brooklyn, to to JFK, okay, it's starting to get close to, to the time. So the Rebbe says, the fact that they, in an hour and a quarter they have a plane to catch. And they're thinking to themselves, they still have to dive They have to pray the, the evening prayer. And they have to go to their hosts where they've been staying. And they have to go collect their belongings. And they have to get a car to the, to the airport. And so they're imagining all of these things. In their mind, they're imagining catching this plane at JFK. So the Rebbe says, but if they would only think about the truth that Hashem is creating the entire creation something from nothing at every single second they would realize that the plane that they need to catch hasn't been created yet. (laughs) It doesn't exist. And that the only thing that exists right now is right here right now okay so there's a very deep concept Hashem is creating the world something from nothing every single second but the practical application is so relevant to all of us and you could tell people calm down take it easy don't get so worked up don't sweat the small stuff that's fine you could tell that to people but can you give me an intelligent reason Can you give me an intelligent explanation why I should allow myself to be completely in the moment, why I shouldn't be fretting and worrying about what's happening an hour from now or a week from now or a month from now? And here comes this concept which seems so ethereal and otherworldly and so spiritual and who needs concepts like this? It's just so lofty. And when you realize the application of the concept, you realize, hold on, this isn't a luxury, this is a necessity, that knowing this idea, if you understand how to apply it, is something that will directly increase your quality of life so that you can be a better spouse and a parent and a worker and a member of the community. And everything that you're doing in life will be enhanced if you can grasp this spiritual concept. So is it such a lofty idea? Maybe, but the application is really, really practical. Okay. I'll give you another example we have a concept that the essence of God is not found in the heavens, in the spiritual realms, because in the spiritual realms, there's only godly revelation, but not godly essence. In the spiritual realms, the spiritual beings, such as the angels, are able to perceive God, but being finite, that means it's a subjective experience. Their experience, their perception of God, meaning it's not God's essence, it's a revelation, it's a glimmer, it's a glow. Like you see the sunlight in the room, but you're not staring into the ball of the sun. Whereas in the physical world, which is the lowest of all planes of creation, you find the essence of God. That God Finds himself at home and desires to be present in the physical world. Okay, now that's a very deep concept. And you hear something like that, and it's like, okay, like, what does it have to do with my life? So, again, I'll, I'll attempt to give you a practical application. <sighs> Hanukkah's coming up, right? Okay, so Hanukkah. Um, we have a lot of different customs. One of the customs, we, and of course we have the the, the, the halacha of lighting the, the menorah. It's not just a custom. It's actually in the code of Jewish law. Well, there's very various different customs. Um, one of the customs we have is we give children gifts of money. We call it gelt. And gelt is Yiddish for money. I know there's chocolate gelt, and a lot of people think of gelt as the chocolate gelt. <laughs> but... <laughs> Gelt is the real, the gelt, the money. Okay. Why is there such a concept of giving children money on Hanukkah? And the idea is like this. Um, remember when the Greeks came into the temple and they defiled the oil? Why did they defile the oil? Why was that important to do? And, and why defile it? If, you, if they had a grudge against the oil, just smash the jars or steal them and go use it for themselves, and then they could have benefit from it. But they just defiled it. they left it there. But they, you know, they, they shook it. They understood how Jewish law worked, and uh, they defiled the oil. And like, what was the strategic value of that? Why did they do that? So one of the problems the Greeks had with the Jews, was that Jewish people insisted in attributing spiritual characteristics to physical objects. Like, you have something called oil, okay? Extra virgin olive oil. Send it to the lab and you can see, is it is it or is it not? And if it's not, you sue the company for false advertising, right? That's something you could test in a lab. They say it's extra virgin olive oil. If it is, you'll see. You could test it, right? But think about something like calling it Shemin Toher or Shemin tome that it's ritually pure, ritually impure. You send that to a lab, send it to any lab you want in the world. They will never be able <clears throat> to distinguish anything different physically under a microscope or any other way of, of, of examining this oil. They will never be able to say, well, this is, this is Tame, this is Tari. This is ritually impure. This is ritually pure. It's a totally spiritual status. So the Greeks hated that. They absolutely despised that because in their mind... The spiritual is the spiritual, the physical is the, fear, uh, the physical, and that's it. So when it comes to physical things, so just what's wrong with physicality for physicality's sake? You know, go, go work out and have your Olympics and be in good shape. And, you know, f- why? For what purpose? Because, because it's a, it itself is a, is a desirable thing. Right, whereas a Jew would say, "No, I, of course I want to be physically healthy, but it has to be for a purpose. It has to be I have to take my physicality and use it for spirituality. So if I, you know, if I have good physical health, then I'm going to use it to do more mitzvahs. I'm going to use it to daven. I'm going to use it to uh, to, to 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 learn Torah. But no, the Greeks are like physicals, the physical is the physical, the spiritual. Look, you want spirituality? Go be a philosopher. Go study abstraction. But don't try to put the two together. And that's why they defiled the oil because they wanted to make that point and say." There's nothing wrong with that oil. It's perfectly good. Use it in your thing. You know, Just go burn it. It's fine. It's perfectly fine. And the fact that Jews said, uh, no, it's not perfectly fine, and not only it's not perfectly fine, but <clears throat> we're willing to fight to the death to make this point, that's like a quintessentially Jewish concept. So the Rebbe brings out something very interesting. It's a chiddish and Rambam. That in, in Hilchas Hanukkah, the, the, in, in, the, in the Mishnah Torah, the 14-volume compendium of, of the entire... Uh, halachic code of, of the oral law. So the, the, the Maimonides talks about the, he gives a little history lesson of what the Greeks do, did and he says which literally means the Greeks set forth their hand upon the Jewish possessions. The Rebbe says what's, what, why, why is there poetry here? Is this a halacha sefer like say what you mean. Like They set forth their hands, they stretched forth their hands upon Jewish possessions. If they stole it, say they stole it. If they, if they vandalized it, say they vandalized what it. What that means they set forth their hand on Jewish uh, possessions or Jewish wealth. So the Rebbe says like this. It's similar to when they defiled the oil. They didn't take the oil, they didn't vandalize the oil, at least not physically. They, they defiled the oil. They gave it a touch. They touched it, they defiled it, right? So <clears throat> the Rebbe says like this. The Greeks didn't say, we're going to take your wealth, they said, <clears throat> we're going to leave you with your wealth, but we're going to touch it first. We're going to defile it. We're going to give it a Greek touch. We want you to assimilate. Remember, the Hellenists wanted to Hellenize. So they wanted Jews to assimilate. You know what that meant? They, want, they wanted Jews to treat physical things as physical. Real Epicureanism. I mean, that's what we, we, we use the term Epicurus, which means a, a heretic in Talmudic lexicon. But it really comes from Epicurus, who was... Or Epicurus. Epicurus is the cooking uh, website, the recipe, but Epicurus was the philosopher of Epicureanism, and that was his, that was his uh, worldview, the physical is the physical, that's it. So the Jewish worldview is no, no, we will not just treat physical things as physical. We will sanctify physical things. We will turn physical things into mitzvahs, and that's why to celebrate The fact that we're here and the ancient Greeks are not, we give our children money. Money. Because we take something which is, if you just take it at face value, if you don't see more deeply, if you don't see the potential of it, oh, it's just material. Just mean those who worship money itself. That's materialism. But the Jewish view is, no, 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 no. You know what you can do with that money? You know how much spiritual potential is there? You know what you could spend that money on? You know, you, you, you know how many mitzvahs you can do with that money? So the idea that Hashem cannot ultimately be found in the spiritual worlds, only a glimmer, only a ray, only a reflection of godliness can be found in the spiritual, in the spiritual realms. But the, the essence of God is only present in the physical world that is expressed in the idea that we cherish physicality as the most potent way to connect to God. You know, they, 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 they tell a story. The Vilna Gaon was on his deathbed and he was crying. His Talmudim were asking why he's crying. You know, was he afraid of the Yeh din He didn't stop learning Torah. Was he afraid of judgment? Uh, they say he, he grabbed his Talas cotton, uh, you know, the, the four-cornered garment with the tzitzas on it, and he was holding it and he was crying. He says, I'm about to leave a world where for a few culpex you buy one of these garments and you do a mitzvah every second you're wearing it and I'm going to a world where for all the treasures of that world you can't do one mitzvah. By the way, mentioning the Vil- Vilna the Velnagon said that, uh, that one who studies the side, the secrets of the Torah, will understand pshat, remez, and drush. The other... Le- levels of Torah the, 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 the concrete and the, the, the referential and the, and the homiletical he says but one who does not study sight even pshat he will not understand yeah, so I think it's very important people who follow and revere the Vilnagon should know that if you refuse to study the secrets the mystical inner dimension of Torah Vilnagon himself testifies that you will not even be able to understand the most literal meaning of Torah and it was just uh, something to consider. So that's, that's another deep concept. The, 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 the preciousness of physicality, of, of, of mitzvahs that we do with our bodies, and uh, that's holier than anything they do in heaven. It's holier than anything in heaven. The angels, they, they, they envy the souls who get to come down and be embodied. Even with all the tests, and even with all the difficulty and the distraction. But Spirituality is not where it's at. That's what, you know, the ultimate, the ultimate goal in Judaism. It's not heaven. We believe in heaven. The ultimate goal is not heaven. The ultimate goal is the perfection of the physical universe. And when the physical universe becomes so perfected, you know what will happen to all the souls who are in heaven? They come back down here, right? Right. That's uh, the the thirteenth uh, principle of faith: the resurrection. Why would the souls come back down here? not just Mashiach, the resurrection. Why will the souls come back into the physical world? Because a perfected physical world is, is far more godly than the highest heaven. Say, it's, anyways, that, that's, that's the abstract way of saying it, but the practical way of saying it is give your, give your kids Hanukkah guilt. Give them money. No joke, give them money and uh, make a party and, and make latkes and you eat the latkes and you make a brocha on the latkes and then you use the the calories from the latkes to uh go on the menorah parade or go to the menorah lighting <laughs> in the park or just put it in suggestions family things bonding that you could do and you want it you, you ate extra f- and you need to burn the calories something you can go to menorah lighting in the park or <clears throat> you <can> go on <laughs> yeah you go take get get a menorah and awesome. yeah Go and find people who Jewish people who don't have a menorah and go out and find them and give them a menorah. Okay, Um, tell you another deep concept. We just learned it today. In the we have a tanya class, a women's tanya class on on Mondays at eleven a.m. at Chabad of the Five Towns upstairs in the library. So actually, we just learned this concept today. It's kabbalistic concept from the Eitz Chaim, which is a sefer of Harav Chaim Vital. Harav Chaim Vital was the Chief disciple and the scribe of the Ari Zal, of Yitzchak Gloria. So, Rav Chaim Vital writes that every single Jewish person, whether he's a tzadik or a rasha, whether he's righteous or he's wicked, he has two souls. He has two souls. Okay, so one soul... and. Today, we just learned this. We learned chapter one, we didn't learn chapter two. So, for those who are in the class, sorry for the spoiler, but I'm going to mention what it says in chapter two. One soul is what we call the animalistic soul and its desires for self preservation. So, comfort and pleasure, and uh, you know, you call it the ego, you can call it uh, lower instincts, lower self, Um, you can call it. you can call it uh, the the carnal desire, you can call it uh, selfishness, but it's 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 a drive for self-preservation, self-fulfillment, self-enhancement. Okay, and then there's this other soul, and it's the exact opposite. It's an altruistic drive. It's selfless. It actually is seeking um, expiration. It wants to, not because not it's self-destructive, God forbid, because a penchant for self-destruction is another type of selfishness. No, it's not trying to achieve self-destruction. It's trying to become one with God. So it wants to lose its, it wants to erase its separate selfhood in order to become dissolved in the, in, in the oneness. Okay, so you have these two um, drives. One drive is self-preservation, um, and the other drive is the desire to become one with the all. Now, that's a very lofty way of saying it. So let's translate it, practical uh, spiritual toolkit. I had a, one of my first, actually, one of my first Tanya classes, I'm talking about maybe 15 years ago. I gave a class, a Tanya class, to a group of women who had never studied Tanya before. In fact, they probably, I don't think, had studied much Torah before at all in any form. And they were not observant, not at all observant. Um, they were very strongly Jewishly identified in a cultural way, uh, but not not observant in any in any traditional sense or even in any Liberal interpretation of the word. They, they they were culturally Jewish, I should say, and they they would tell you that. You know, I, I don't like to use the term because it sounds dismissive, but you know what we call bagels and locks Judaism. That, that's what they practiced: bagels and locks Judaism. So, um, and we were studying Tanya together, and I remember one day. It was this time of year, you know, after you set the clocks. No, no, It was right before. That's right. It was right before we set the clocks back. Because this was part of the conversation. This lady comes in to the class and she says, you know, I got all excited about Shabbat candles. I'm going to light Shabbat candles on time. And I remember the class telling her, well, you know, you know what's going to happen. They're going to set the clocks back and then... You're going to have to light at like 4.30. It's going to be crazy. And she said, don't worry. It's going to be fine. <clears throat> so, and this was like a real breakthrough for her. And this this is not a Shabbos observant person. She wanted to start, and this is actually factors into the story. She was not Shabbos observant. She took on to light Shabbos. Because after she lit candles, she did malachas. She did work. It was, she wasn't keeping Shabbos yet, but she started to light candles, and she wanted to light them on time, which was a big deal for her coming from You know, having nothing like that in her background, so she comes in the next week, and she's all like, "Kvelling," like, proud, and she says, "I want to share with everyone this wonderful thing that happened to me this week." She says, "Um, "I looked at the clock. So this was the next week after they set the clock back." She says. I looked at the clock, and it's candle lighting time was at 4.50 something. I forget the exact, 4.50 something. And I see I have to light Shabbos candles now. She says, at that moment, I'm about to light the Shabbos candles. I realize I wrote a check today. At, remember checks? <laughs> <laughs> to... We used to have papers, so we write on them, or sign checks. Okay. <laughs> you have to show ID to prove that. Okay. Anyway, so she said, I wrote a check today, and it's not covered. And I have money, I have another check, and if I go to the bank and I deposit that check, it'll cover the check that I wrote, so it won't bounce. And I'm looking at the clock. And I'm realizing, hold on a second, the bank is closing. And if I go there right now, I could go. I, she says, I could go to the bank. Bank's like five minutes there, five minutes back. But if I go to the bank and I deposit the check, I don't light Shabbos candles on time. I told you she wasn't from or She would have known about the 18 minutes. <laughs> 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 Anyways, she was too pure and innocent. Anyways, so she says, I, I I'm looking at the clock and I'm I'm thinking to myself, can I do this? And she said, No, I can't. I can do one or the other. Either I'm going to go to the bank and I'm going to make the deposit and not bounce the check, or I'm going to light Shabbos candles. I can't do both. Can't do both. So she said, I started thinking to myself, what do I really want? And she said, "Well, you know what? I I don't know what I really want. I want both. I, I don't want to bounce the check, and I don't want to pay the the penalties, and I don't want my husband to be disappointed. And, and on the other hand, I want only Chabad's candles. I, I I want to I, I want to be part of this of this of this thing that's happening all over the world. Jewish women and girls all over the world are are lighting and." I don't want to be excluded from this, this wonderful thing that's going on all over the world. So she says, I'm, I'm like going back and forth, and I'm trying to figure out. It's like Time is ticking. I'm trying to figure out, what do I want? What do I want to do? And she says, all of a sudden, I realized, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Every Jew has two souls. So there's one part of me, animal soul, self-preservation. It says, go deposit your check. Why should you have to pay the bank money because you were being religious, because you were lighting a candle? Go cover the check. She says, there's another part of me. Godly soul, godly soul doesn't care about that. Godly soul wants to do whatever is going to allow it to become closer to the infinite. And at this moment, what can make me closer to the infinite than anything else, at this moment, is to light that candle at that time. So she says, Once I understood that's what we were dealing with, I said, hands down, easy decision, godly soul. So I'm telling you, this is a woman who, she wasn't from an observant background. She started studying Tanya, and this is what it brought her to. Which brings me to a very important point that I'd like to highlight here. A lot of people ask the question. Remember we were talking about before about the body and the soul of Torah. There's the legalistic, right? And there's the, the spiritual. A lot of people question, what is the value of teaching spiritual, deep spiritual concepts to people who aren't even observant? People ask that. It's a real question. People say, let somebody become observant. They'll study halacha, Jewish law. They'll start to observe Jewish law. And maybe then they'll start to study a little bit, become literate in the basics. And then, after a while, we'll, we'll introduce them to more sophisticated concepts like spiritual stuff. And first of all, I'll tell you what the Vilna Gon said. <laughs> Without the sight, even the shot, you won't understand. Okay, But if that's not compelling enough for you, I can tell you, by firsthand experience, how many people were brought to the observance of halacha through an appreciation for the spiritual principles behind halacha. Look, I'll take any Jew, how they come. If somebody comes up to me and says, I want to study halacha, and that's my entry point to Judaism and how I want to start to become uh, observant, I'm not going to send them away. Okay, I'll slip in a little this as well. But no, I'll take... No, you want to learn halacha? We learn halacha. But somebody who's ready to hear deep spiritual ideas, do not discount that and do not think that that's just icing on the cake before you've even eaten your vegetables. It's not true. It's one Torah with two dimensions, the inner and the outer, spiritual and the the more um, practical. And they all lead to the same thing, and in fact, many times you see somebody who learns the soul of Torah. That's how they end up with the body of it. Okay, I don't know. I have, I, I made a whole list of. <laughs> I have like 20 of these. I'm not going to tell you. Not going to tell you all. I, I I didn't know how long it was. I never gave this talk before, so I. I'm just unpacking my spiritual toolkit. I didn't know how long it was going to take to unpack the whole thing. So I only told you, I think, three ideas. I'll tell you a fourth one very shortly. I'll tell you one more. And I'll I'll do it shortly. I'll do it as briefly as possible. This is an important concept. And and, and I'll I'll tell it to you the abstract way, and then we'll tell it the practical way. Um, The abstract idea is there's a notion that um, there's a notion that the, the Jewish people are actually one single entity which, through embodiment, takes on the appearance of separation from itself. Like, yeah, the embodiment, you know, the fact that, you know, two things can't be in the same place. And one thing can't be in two places. Embodiment is what causes the appearance of separation. So here's me, there's you. But if you look at us spiritually, we're one soul. We're one spiritual energy, the entire Jewish people. Um, There was once a a teacher teaching his class about uh, singular and plural. And so he he taught them different nouns, singular and plural. So he says, like, shoes. Shoes is plural. And he says, uh, Shirt. Shirt is singular. And he asked him, what, what's pants? And the kid said, um, plural on the bottom and singular on the top. <laughs> okay. But actually, the Jewish people are plural on the bottom, singular on the top. Down here in the physical world, we each inhabit different bodies, so we're separate from each other. Spiritually, we're one, we're one entity. We're one being. Um, and that is the, the mystical concept of, of the, the oneness of the Jewish people. So that, that's, that's the spiritual concept. What's, what's the practical application? So actually, this this practical application I got from, uh, from the Jerusalem Talmud, from the Yashalmi. It says over there that if a person makes a vow, there's a concept, a person makes a vow, they have to keep the vow, but it's a mitzvah to actually be released from your vow. And... <clears throat> The way that it's done, you have to go to a chochem, to a sage, and he finds what's called a Pesach. A Pesach means an opening, but what it really means is that he has to find something. Had you, had, had you <laughs> known this piece of information at the time of your vow, you would never have made the vow. So like, let's say somebody says, <clears throat> I'm making a vow never to eat dairy again. And then he goes to the chochem and he says, well, did you know ice cream is dairy? No, I thought it was just cottage cheese. I didn't realize it was... He says, well, yeah, well, if I would have known that, I would never make such a vow. And then he could, the Chochem, the, the sage can know the vow. Okay, so <clears throat> the, Yerushalmi tells a, a hypothetical scenario where a guy was neider bahano, that means where he got so mad at some other Jew where he said, if he makes a party, I'm not going, right? If he's the honoree at the dinner, I'm not going. Right? I don't like this guy. I don't want any benefit from him. Okay. So he has to keep that vow because he made a vow. You have to keep it. But like any vow, you should be released from it. Especially a vow like that, which is not a nice vow. But he, he can't stop it on his own. He has to go to the Chacham, the sage, and the sage will release him. So, Yenoshalmi says like this. The sage says to the guy who just made a, a vow, I'm, I'm mad at so-and-so. He, he hurt me, and, you know, I'm getting back. At him. So the sage says to him, you know, there was once a, a worker in his workshop, and he was working with a sharp tool. And when he, when he was working with his, with his tool, he slipped. And with his dominant hand, his right hand, who was holding the tool, he slipped. He stabbed his left hand. Should his left hand then grab the tool and stabbed the right hand in retaliation. So when the Chacham says this scenario, the person hears that. and He says, well, no, of course not. That would be absurd, because <clears throat> he stabbed himself, and he should stab himself again. It's like this is even more than two wrongs don't make a right, because two wrongs don't make a right just means there's, there's no nobody gains. Nobody gains. But this is more, that's, this is deeper than that. This is one guy gets hurt twice. One guy got hurt twice. So one guy stabbed his right hand, and now, to even the score, the same guy is going to stab his own left hand, so now he's hurt twice. So the Chacham then says to the guy, once he has that clarity, he says, well, you know what? When this guy hurt you, that's one person. The Jewish people are one person. That's one person Having been hurt. Now you hurt him back. Now the same person has been hurt twice. Because the Jewish people are not a people, we're a person. We're one entity which inhabits different bodies. So this sounds like such a lofty concept one soul emanating into different bodies, but the practical application of it can help you get over a grudge. Can help you seek forgiveness can help you heal from emotional wounds it's very very practical very practical and i hope you'll based on these examples that i've given you you'll believe me well don't believe me go test it out but you will become curious enough now to go test out that every deep spiritual concept in The mystical dimension of the Torah has practical, everyday, relevant applications.